just making sure you're awake. I will flood you uh, with the life of Noah. Sin, judgment, grace, and salvation. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. As we turn our Bibles to Genesis 6, I want to point out some things that I just actually learned last night. And that is that as you read the flood account, it starts in Genesis 6 uh, with the God's eyes perspective. You get to see kind of from his vantage point, the overall condition of the earth, what God's getting ready to do, why he's getting ready to do it, how he's going to deliver the godly from judgment and tribulation. Uh, but then when you get to chapter 7 through about 9, what you see is that you're, you're no longer from God's eye view, you're actually in Noah's point of view. And if you think about it, a worldwide flood, um, when you're reading about it, and, and when you're watching children's cartoons about it, and you see people's nurseries like decorated with the flood account, you're like, oh, how cute, a rainbow, and a nice little boat, and some water. But if you imagine what it would have been like to be Noah even though he knew the flood was coming, and you imagine what it would be like to get in a boat where God closes the door and you're on there with all these animal kinds, and then it rains for 40 days, and wood, uh, water comes up from the springs of the deep, the water comes down from the sky above, and then it says that the flood gets so deep that it's 10 feet above the highest mountain. And if you imagine the highest mountain... Uh, being, what, in the Himalayas, that, that's pretty stinking high. And in the midst of that, you're, fly, you're, you're floating on an endless sea. It, you never see land, which I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a big swimmer. So to be on a boat is one thing, but to see, be on a boat where you can't see the shore is totally different, and it can be very scary. And so um, what we'll see is from God's vo- viewpoint today that God has a reason he's going to flood the earth. And so in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, It came to pass that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so we see the conditions of the world before the flood. And before we start, I want to point out that this particular passage in Genesis is arguably the most difficult passage to exposit or teach because there's so much controversy around these four verses. Uh, So in the Septuagint, or excuse me, not the Septuagint, uh, Gazunite, but um, in the Pentateuch, the first five books... This is one of the most difficult passages because there's a lot of controversy that surrounds it. But what we want to point out is that in these days, there was a multiplication of man on the face of the earth. And if you think about it, it's very likely that Adam lived to be alive while Noah's grandparents were alive. And so 10 generations you would live to see. 
So if you live for 10 generations and you have the ability to uh, reproduce for 10 generations, and I believe that they did, then there would be just from your household alone and the households that that produces would be exponential growth in population. And many believe that because of this, that the earth was filled with people like it is today. Maybe not billions, but perhaps hundreds of millions. And so in 10 generations, all these people, this massive explosion of population on the earth. Uh, Number two, there were marriages happening between, it says, sons of God and daughters of men, which are odd labels because up until this point, it would just be men and women were getting married and having children. But now it's mentioning sons of God and daughters of men. Now, Notice what they do. Before we even get into the antics of what that phraseology means, let's notice what they're doing. The sons of God, or excuse me, the the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men. And so notice what it says there. I believe it's in verse 2. It says that they saw the daughters of men. They took and they chose for themselves. Now, I just want to draw a parallel between this and Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve, Eve was there standing before the tree they were not supposed to partake of. He saw the, she saw the fruit, she took the fruit, and she chose for herself to do it, right? So the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Now, let's get into what was going on here because many Bible teachers, many people that are way more brilliant than I am, see this passage and they say, well, the sons of God are the godly line of Seth. Remember when Seth was born, it says, in these days, people began to call upon the name of the Lord because before that, they were not. But then The daughters of men are actually what many believe to be daughters of the ungodly, the line of Cain, those that rejected and rebelled against God's command and murdered from the beginning. He says in verse 3 here, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And so after that, God pronounces this judgment. Now, many believe that that verse means that at this point, God's going to shorten the lifespan of man. But the problem with that is that there are people born after this pronouncing from God that live past 120 years. So is God not able to fulfill what he says? I believe that he is. What I believe that this particular verse means is that at this point, he's saying, yet his days shall be 120 years from this point until the actual flood was a distance of 120 years. So God says, I will not always strive with fallen man, but in 120 years, judgment is coming. That's what I believe this means. Um, But before that, he says, the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They took wives from the daughters of men. But why would that be enough for God to wipe out the human race? What's that have to do with anything? If they're just marrying and giving in marriage and multiplying, isn't that what God commanded mankind to do? Master creation, manage those, the, the animals that live in creation, and multiply your families. Multiply godly seed. That's what God gave us to do as mankind. And yet God says that in 120 years, he's going to flood the world. And we're going to see that in the rest of this text. But 
Sons of God and daughters of men bore children. Isn't that a good thing? Well, the reality is that this phrase that means sons of God here in the Old Testament refers to the same phrase. If you look up other passages that use the same Hebrew words, you can find it in Job chapter 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1, and chapter 38 verse 7. And it's always used to describe angels, angelic beings. And you might say, well, wait a minute. So angelic beings are taking and marrying women of men and they're reproducing. But wait a minute, doesn't Jesus say in the New Testament that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage? Well, yes, it does. But I would point out that it doesn't say that they cannot reproduce. Now, you can, we can thumb wrestle over this passage. But I believe what it's teaching here is that somehow that angels are actually coming down to creation somehow sexually joining themselves to women, producing offspring, because otherwise, if it's just men and women, then why is it producing giants, it names here? And in particular, in verse 4, it says, there were giants on the earth in those days. And the word there for giant, in some of your translations, will say Nephilim. And the word Nephilim means giants. We also see them and believe that some of their descendants were Goliath and his brothers. But my point is, is that Nephilim in the Hebrew means fallen ones. And if you think about Satan, he's calling a fallen angel from the beginning. And he's the prince of the fallen angels. He's their director. He's their commanding officer, if you will. And so why in the world would angels try to have relations with women of men and produce offspring. Well, I want to submit to you that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promised that be after the fall that he would through the seed of the woman produce a Messiah who would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And so in order to stop this Messiah from coming through the godly line, what Satan knows is that God must judge sin. And in order to judge sin, Satan would try to poison the line, essentially drop in a virus in the line of the lineage of humanity so that God would have no choice but to wipe humankind from the face of the earth, therefore getting rid of the possibility of a Messiah who would conquer Satan. Does that make sense? And so God's trying to produce this salvation plan through the line of Seth, and yet Satan is doing a counteroffensive, and he says, well, watch this. I'm going to poison mankind with sin from the beginning, and then God will judge it, and then I'll stop God's rescue plan. And I want to point out in Jude, in verse 4, 6, and 7, that if you look, and of course we've quoted this a couple of times in our study of Enoch, and of our study of some of the, the people that have gone before. If you look at Jude, which is the last letter before Revelation, in Jude verse 4, it says, speaking of those who are apostates in the church, in the New Testament, he says, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for condemnation. 
ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So go down to verse 6, and it says, In the same manner, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, speaking of the fallen angels, he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he describes what they did. They didn't only leave their abode, but he says in verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, we'll study those in a few weeks, in a similar manner to these, having given, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the angels left their abode and they did things that were immoral for them to do, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, when the men were going and having relations with other men, doing things that they were not made to do. What he's saying here is that in like manner, the angels describing their sin, not only leaving their proper abode, but doing things that are unnatural against God's order in creation. And because of that, they're reserved for everlasting punishment. And so all that to say, that's, that's at least what I believe this passage is saying. But no matter what the sin was, let's back up from these theories no matter what the sin was, there was sin, and God judges sin always. He's holy. And so because he is holy, he cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot judge with partiality. And so whatever the sin was in that day, what I want to point out is that in, it says here that, that God is going to flood the whole earth because of what was going on. Now, I want to take one additional source, if you'll allow me the liberty. This isn't into, um, this is a book from old school, uh, it's back from the archives, it's called First Enoch. Now it's not an inspired book, it's not scripture, it's not in our Bible, it didn't meet the standards of the early church, but in there we have a narrative of what someone else wrote down in that day. It says, um, it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives and each chose for himself one. And they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and they became pregnant and they bare great giants and there arose much godlessness and they committed fornication and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. And so there's this ungodly, dark mysticism and spiritism built into what was going on. And so um, all that to say... Uh, sin was rampant. And so in verse 5, back in Genesis 6, says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that's what we should focus in on. That God saw with his holy sight, he sees everything. Not just what it looks like things are going on, but he saw the heart of the matter. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so the conditions that led to God's judgment of the earth were this. Population explosion. We saw that in verse 1. Man was rampantly multiplying on the earth. Genesis 6-2 shows us that there was sexual perversion taking place. And it was rampant. There was demonic activity. And man's intentions and his thoughts were continually for evil. And then in verse 11, which we'll get to, corruption and violence were widespread. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this seems to define the days that we live in. We seem to be ripe for judgment. Uh, The population right now grows 250,000 people a day. And if you think in the scheme of the worldwide population, it was 6 billion when I was in high school. It is 7.35 billion now, give or take. That's what the Googles told me. But all I want to point out is that perversion sexually, and even in the ungodly realms, even the world right now is going, oh my gosh, look what's going on. And they're calling out these these trafficking agencies and, you know, and, and it's, it's, oh, imagine this. What supports child trafficking more than anything? Pornography. But you know what the, the numbers say right now in the church? Let's not talk about the world. It says that seven out of 10 men in our world, in the Christian world, are viewing pornography. 70% of the church Church, stop telling the world to repent. We need to repent. That's what's going on. And we are fueling the sexual trafficking of children and women around the world. You say, well, this sin, how does it affect other people? We're finding out. The world is showing us that our backslidings are actually supporting child trafficking. Men are watching it. Men, get right with the Lord. Get somebody to be accountable with. It is a temptation unlike it's ever been. No longer is it dial-up. Now it's in your cell phone. Beware. Rampantly now, it's not just men. Women are watching pornography. Sexual perversion was rampant in the days before Noah's flood. Demonic activity. I was told this week that there's a witchcraft shop opening up in Arcadia. Not, we're, let's not talk about the cities. Let's talk about small town. And it is real. I'm not a big fan of Halloween. Forgive me. But I don't, I can't celebrate this dark magic stuff that's going on. Now, do my kids dress up? Absolutely. My kids dress up all year round. My point is, is that demonic activity is very real. And so it's not to be afraid of. It's just to show us that what is Evil in the eyes of the Lord has become commonplace in our hearts. And man's intent and thoughts are continually evil. And corruption on every level of society is taking place. 
and violence is widespread. Look at the riots. Look at our own riots. And so all that to say, I want to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 24. Let's look at what Jesus had to say about the days of Noah. For those of the, those of the Christian community even that reject a literal worldwide flood, and they say, well, that was just allegory. I want to point out that Jesus, whom we claim to follow, believed in a flood, believed in what happened in the ark and everything leading up to it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Jesus speaking says, As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As it was in the days of Noah, so it is now. And Jesus said it would be. But what I want to point out before we move on is that man's condition has grieved the heart of God in the days of Noah and in our day. But it's never caught him off guard, nor will it thwart his plan for salvation. So we've seen in the last slide, sin abounded. Romans 5 said where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And then we saw in the next slide, judgment has been pronounced. God's pronounced his judgment and he always reveals it to those who know him so that we can be ready and so that we can share it with others so they could be ready. And then the next passage, a servant is found. See, he says he's going to wipe off the face of the earth, all of mankind. And yet what we find in verse 8 here in Genesis 6 is that Noah, and it says, but, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so think about this. Man's condition not only was horrible and, and hurting other people, but notice that it said there in our last passage that it actually grieved the heart of God. Now remember that in chapter 5 of Genesis, it said that Noah in his days would bring comfort and rest. And I believe that his presence and his actions will be, bring comfort and rest for mankind from sin, but it's also going to bring comfort and rest for the Lord himself. Did you know that the Lord is affected emotionally somehow, even though it doesn't change him, that he allows himself to be hurt or to be blessed by what you and I do? When we worship and praise him, it affects him. Not that it changes how he will act, but at the same time, he is grieved by sin to the point that it, it makes him downcast and it gets him involved. And so in here, we see that he's grieved and by Noah's life, he's going to be given rest and comfort. And so this is the genealogy of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So I want to point out that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah didn't earn grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace. God gave it to him. Now, I want to remind you that grace means undeserved, unmerited, unearned. He couldn't do anything to gain it. 
God didn't choose Noah because Noah was perfect. Although what we're going to find out is that it says he was perfect in his generation. And so when we read the Bible and when we do the children's storybook Bibles and when we see these videos that are made after these Old Testament stories, it always makes them to be the heroes of the Bible. But my take is, is that there's only one hero in the Bible and that's God himself. That's Jesus. But this hero, Jesus, is able to use anybody and he is willing to use anybody that is willing. And so what we find out about Noah is that he's a sinner still. And yet he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace. He didn't earn it. And then grace, I want to remind you what it means, God's riches at Christ's expense. The only way that we find grace is because it costs God. And so notice also it says that he was a just man in his generation. Now, the Bible says a lot about justice and justification, but in Romans chapter 5, I will remind you that Paul writes there about justification. It means that you are just seen in the sight of the Lord just as if you've never sinned, justified. When God looks at you and you've trusted his son Jesus, you've been cleansed completely. So when he looks on, upon you, he doesn't see you and your sin. He sees his son. And remember what he said about his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, having been made just by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we are justified as believers, and Noah had it no different. He was justified in the eyes of the Lord because he trusted God by faith. Noah had to live by faith, just like you and I. And yet, we have way more revealed to us, so it's easier, I believe, to have faith now than it was in the days of Noah, surrounded by ungodliness. And then it says he was perfect in his generation. Well, in Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus talked about being perfect in the eyes of the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, in verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. (sighs) Easier said than done, right? He says that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's interesting. We're studying a passage that leads to the greatest rain that ever happened. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And they were like the most obviously wicked in the days of Jesus. And if you greet your brethren only or your family only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore, You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, wait a minute. I feel like there was a gap there. 
If you do these things, you'll be perfect. He's not saying do these things and you'll be made perfect. He says, when the fruit of your life shows that you love your enemies and bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you, you're going to prove that you are perfect in the eyes of the Lord because you do the things that reflect God's character. Not to earn salvation, but it proves who you're planted in. It proves who you follow by how you treat others. And so therefore, my thought is that Noah was found to be perfect in his generation because he was already doing these things. He was loving his neighbor. He loved God first, and he loved his neighbor like he loved himself. And so all that to say, Noah was found to be perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. And I believe this is the biggest piece. Noah knew the rescue plan. He knew about judgment and he knew how to be rescued because in his generation, you know what the earmark was for his life? He walked with God. And if you remember, this echoes from last chapter. There was a character by the name of Enoch who it says Enoch was born. He had a son. He lived 300 years. He had many sons and daughters, and then he was not, for God took him. It didn't say that he died. It says he was not, for God took him because he walked with God. And this is the earmark of any believer, walking daily with God. And so after this, it says that Noah had begotten three sons, and offspring was given to him to start over. So Noah was set apart in his generation. Got a little picture there for you on the upper screen where there's a bunch of fish all swimming in one direction. And there's one that looks different swimming in the opposite direction, swimming upstream, if you will. And I believe in many ways that salmon are a picture of what we're supposed to be as believers. Salmon swim upstream at just the wrong time to swim upstream because that's what God made them to do. And as believers, God has made us not only no longer to be in our old environment, salt water, but then to get in fresh water and swim upstream until we receive our reward and we multiply God's kingdom. And so a servant is found in this most wicked generation. And then to this servant, God reveals the plan of salvation. So Genesis 6 There in verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt. So not only was mankind corrupt, but the earth was corrupted by sin as well. It was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, I want to point something out that might be hidden, and yet I think it needs to be drawn out. That God says, I'm going to destroy all flesh. And yet what he's revealing is a plan for Noah's family to be saved. So how can he destroy all flesh and yet leave one and his descendants? I want to point something out. That baptism is a type of what Noah's getting ready to go through. In baptism, it's a picture of salvation because we're not saved by being baptized. But out of a good conscience, we decide to repent of our sin, 
to allow someone to take us underwater, which makes no sense to the world. But when you're brought up from the water, the idea is that you've killed the old man in death, and then you've brought up the new man. You're not just getting a bath, but your flesh is being cleansed and being removed. The old man has gone and died, and you're raised again to newness of life. This is a new creation in Christ. Behold, the all old things have passed away, and all things are made new. God doesn't rebuild us. God makes us new. God doesn't start over with an old car and, and kind of change it and put new parts on it. He completely restores it by making a new creation. He creates us a second time. And so in the same way, God's getting ready to cleanse the world of unrighteousness and Noah's family is going to be transformed through tribulation. They're going to learn to trust God in an entirely new way. They're being told the whole earth is going to be purged of sin and they're going to have to get on a boat to do that and stay there with stinky animals and listen to the thunder and the rain and see the whole world slowly, completely covered in water. I don't know about you, but I guarantee that that was 40 days of prayer going, are you sure, Lord? You know, like this is the craziest storm I've ever seen. And yet what do storms do to us? I believe that they sober us and they purify our lives. They cause us to let go of the things. Think about the Apostle Paul as he's getting ready to go to Rome. He's on a ship and it's getting ready to be shipwrecked. And the Lord tells him the ship is going to wreck. And what do the sailors do? What do sailors do when the ship starts to rock and row and, and, and go in the waves? They start throwing off the stuff they don't really need. Oh, don't need this extra weight. Don't need this extra weight. You know, it'd be great to make profit from this grain, but this grain is taking us so low, we're going to run aground. So they throw it out. And when storms happen, and you've seen this in the last season, and you start to wonder if I'm going to have income, you start to wonder if things are going to work out with the economy, or if your 401k is going to happen, and you start to go, do I really need to spend this on that? Do I really need this new or this thing? Or, you know, and, and then you start to go, you know, I can really survive with a lot less than I was making myself have to burden myself with on my income. Maybe we should save up for the day of rain. Maybe we should pre prepare our household because the stock market could crash and then all of a sudden my money doesn't mean anything. Maybe I should prepare my, my family so that they're ready for eternity. We don't gain the world and lose our souls. Tribulation produces patience. Romans 5, patience produces character, and character produces in us hope, and our hope doesn't disappoint because it's anchored in Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's with us in the storm, and he's going to take us through, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to guarantee our passage through any storm that we can ever experience. And so all that to say, Noah had to trust God by faith and he had to do that through the flood just like everybody else that didn't get on the boat who probably started praying and yet it was too late. So I want to point out in this passage after I read it, this is how you shall make it. And he gives them the plans for the boat. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, which is uh, 450 feet. It's width 50 cubits, which is 75 feet. 
and its height 30 cubits, which is 45 feet high. Um, You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit, or 18 inches from above the top, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks, and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons, wives with you, and of everything of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, and of the birds of their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. And we could talk about how that was even possible to get them all on. But just one example is dogs. Dog kind got one male and one female. We didn't have great Pyrenees and, and uh, you know, uh, dachshunds and, we, you know, wiener dogs. Or, or We didn't have every single one. We had dog kind, man, male and female. We had bird kind, you know, like all the different kinds. So there was plenty of space. And um, there's all these objections that atheists have about the ark being a literal thing, but there's all kinds of reasonable explanations for how that was possible. And on top of that, if you believe what Genesis 1-1 says, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then no doubt he can call animals just the right kinds, just the right male and female, just the right age to walk onto the ship, and he can cause ones that are the right age that won't die during the 150 days on the boat. And so all that to say... He gives them instructions, and of every living thing of all flesh, verse 20, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, meaning clean food that they could eat. You shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him So he did. Verse 22 is really the capstone for this chapter. Thus Noah did, according to all that God said, Noah obeyed. And so faith in God looks like Noah's life. If you want to see what it looks like, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, where it says, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. One verse, but a lot packed in it. So I have there for you, faith receives warning from God and believes it. And James chapter 1 says that uh, let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. If, if Noah receives the word, hears it, but doesn't do anything about it, what does it gain him? I know what God said. I know what God's word says. I hear people all the time quote the Bible, but they don't, they don't respond to it. If I know that the traffic sign says stop and I don't stop, it could cause massive problems. And so the warning labels on things, if I read the warning, I know what it says, but I'm still going to do it. Well, then don't be surprised when you get the results of that action. Faith receives warning and believes it. 
Faith moves with godly fear like Noah did. A hearer of the word, not only, but also a doer. Faith prepares the way for salvation. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 22 says that he did everything that God told him. According to what God did, he did it. What, what he said, he got, God did. What God said, he did. Notice that Noah, by acting in faith, saved himself, saved his household, saved their spouses. Follow Jesus and trust that God's going to highlight that. People that don't believe are watching. Now, let's not discount the fact that most of the world said, Noah, you're nuts, and I'm going to keep doing my thing. That's okay. Do your thing anyway, believers. So faith receives warning and believes it. Faith moves with godly fear. Faith prepares the way for salvation, and others are saved by your actions of belief. But notice also, faith condemns the world. Faith condemns those who will not receive your testimony. And if you turn to John chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, God did not send his son into the world, verse 17, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who believed Noah's testimony will get on the, the boat and not be condemned to drowning. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name or the character of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. God revealed his plan to the world, but then men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men prefer to stay in darkness. Women prefer to stay in darkness because they love their sin. They don't want to forsake it. And so they are condemned with the rest of the world. For everyone practicing, verse 20, evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. By the way, the unregenerate heart will not come to church without being invited because they hate the light. Invite people. To Jesus. They will not show up for funsies. They would prefer to sleep in, to sleep off whatever happened the night before, whatever happened the week before. Trust me, that's my testimony. Someone had to invite me, and then I got up, and I still didn't really want to go, but I came because somebody I respected invited me, even though I didn't believe what they did. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And that those who respond to the light have the opportunity not to come perfectly, but to repent and believe what God says about their sin is true. But faith condemns the world. We don't like that part, but it's true. But notice also, faith inherits righteousness. Faith inherits righteousness. 1 Peter 3, as my uh, second to last reference, I promise. 1 Peter 3, start verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit 
Noah had to put to death his plans for his life, by the way, to spend 120 years preparing an ark. You, you heard the dimensions. They're pretty big. He built it for 100 years. He put to death his life's plans to prepare a way for salvation. Jesus also put to death his life's plans, put to death his actual life so that we could be made alive in the spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who are caught in sin, Noah had to reveal the plan. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is only eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So, all that to say, faith inherits righteousness that comes to us and has been deposited into our account by faith. And so the question might become, as believers, if I want to, in my days, work the works of God like Noah did, prepare a way of salvation, receive warning and, and do what I can to stave off the judgment of mankind, how can I work the works of God? And that's what they asked Jesus in John chapter 6 and verse 28. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And they were probably thinking that he was going to give them a checklist or a to-do list. We like lists. I do. I like to be able to get things done. And yet what Jesus said to that multitude, Jesus answered and said to them in John chapter 6 verse 29, this is the only work that God requires of you that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe the testimony of Jesus. Believe in his life. Believe in what he did. Believe in what he accomplished. Believe in what he still wants to do in your life. How may we work the works of God? And the life of Noah was the same as the life of Jesus. Hear, believe, and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's that simple. So Lord Jesus, thank you for the life of Noah. Thank you for his testimony of simplicity and sincerity. Thank you for his willingness to look weird in his generation. Even to build something that makes no sense when they'd never seen rain before and they were in the desert. But Father, thank you for this ship Thank you that the, our ark is Jesus Christ. That if we will get on board with him and we'll walk with him and believe what he said and taught, that we will be saved. And even if in this life we suffer or look weird or are persecuted, that we will be raised anew, that the flood of judgment will come and that we will be saved through tribulation. And so, Lord, in our day, Lord, help us to believe that when it's hard to believe that with everything going on, help us to anchor ourselves to you. Help us to believe that what you said will come to pass if we'll just endure and trust you and walk with you daily in fellowship. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.